Hey, First Baptist Keller, this is Tyler Sulfridge with you today as we continue to walk through the book of Philippians. Welcome back. This is a very uh, great book. It's one filled with application. And actually, when we have students that start to really grow in their faith and start to ask questions about how they can grow in the Lord, how they can understand God better, how they can understand themselves and life better. Very quickly, we often ask them to read with us the book of Philippians or even the book of James. And I think all of us get to the point at which we stop and we meditate on or we consider what we really want our lives to be like. For some of us, like many of the conversations I get to have with those students, we begin to consider some of these things when we're young. We think about what we hope to accomplish in our careers or in school. We dream about where we might live. We think about where we expect to travel or or the kinds of relationships that might uh, mark our lives as we go. And last week, Tony told us that this letter of Philippians is like reading someone else's mail. It's highly personal. Like they wrote a letter to someone and it ended up in our inbox and instead of closing it and giving it to the person for which it was intended, we open it and we begin to read it. And what we find when we begin to read the letters of the New Testament, especially many of Paul's writings, we see quickly that they are some of the more personal and practical insights into a biblical author's heart. In Paul's personal account, he gives us one of the more rich and what I hope will be for all of us a thought-provoking and personally motivating perspectives on life. And even when we finish up our time together, instead of giving us maybe a direct application, I'm just going to ask a series of questions for all of us to consider where our lives are. Because like we said, All of us get to that point in life where we say, what do we want our lives to be? What do we want our lives to be marked by? The word joy is a good word to say we want our lives to be marked by. And that word is used 16 times in these four chapters. Last week, we covered joy and prayer. This week, we want to talk about the fundamental perspective. So we're talking about life. So we're talking about what is it that brings um, our lives joy? Where can we find joy at in our lives? And we're going to see that in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there with me, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and read that passage. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed of the gospel but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So in the first three verses, Um, that we covered, 12 through 14, Paul locates himself. We find Paul's position. He says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. But what is it that's happened to him? He tells us in verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. This then is, of course, a prison epistle. We meet Paul then, and he is in prison, and he tells us the reason for Christ. And and let's think about the turn of events that have transpired in Paul's life. It's pretty bizarre, kind of crazy. When we meet Paul in Acts chapter 8 and 9, he is, and let me just tell you what the Bible says in, in Acts chapter 9 verse 1. It says this, Paul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul, at this point, was literally threatening jail sentences, persecution, and even death for any, even women, the Bible makes sure to indicate. That he would he would persecute and threaten death and jail sentences for those that would leave Judaism for the sake of following the way or following Jesus. Now here he is writing the book of Philippians, and the very things that he was threatening before have come to pass and will come to pass in his own life. He has been persecuted. He is currently in prison and will one day even give his life for the gospel that he now proclaims, but that he was giving his whole being to stamp out when we first met him. So the weight of these events, they really set in when we don't think about Paul necessarily in terms of what he's lost, but when we consider what it is that he could have gained. And he tells us everything that he could have gained in uh, Philippians chapter 3, the same book that we're in now. Philippians chapter 3 verse 3 says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, this is actually verse 4, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. So Paul, he was he as was set up. He had the pedigree. He has the mind for it. He had the training. He had the heart for it. He looked the right way, and he said all of the right things. He had the right zeal. Zeal so much it caused him to persecute the church. He, he was from the right background. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, even of the tribe of Benjamin, he says. So Paul had all of the right things for a career that could be launched and take him wherever he wanted to go. Whatever Paul wanted in life, he could have had. 
But then, of course, he came face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, and his life was altered. But more importantly, we find that not just his life was altered, something had to happen inside of him. His heart had to be transformed so that we could see this life marked now by joy and a proclamation of the gospel. We know that our hearts have been transformed by the fact that our affections change, our allegiances change, and our words change even. And we know that the Bible says that you will know them by their fruit. And so joy and and living a changed or altered or transformed life, completely different than an old self, is what really indicates that we have, in fact, had a heart change. And if we read those passages in uh, Acts chapter 8 and 9, and then we look at the rest of Paul's life, we realize very quickly that this is a life that has been altered. And so we meet Paul in a certain place, But now when we see him writing from Philippians, an altogether different place, we see that it's this gospel and this this joy that the gospel brings of knowing that he has in fact been made right with God the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ the Son that causes him to live a life transformed. In verses 15 through 18, we can see and hear how Paul's posture toward the gospel has radically switched. A moment ago, we mentioned Paul's proclamation. He tells us in verse 15 that it is that proclamation exactly for which he finds himself locked down now. And what is it that could possibly motivate someone to believe something so strongly that they would lose their freedom for it and perhaps even their life for it? Look what Paul says about motives in verses 15, 16, and 17. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love. Then verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. So these are two drastically different motives for proclaiming the gospel. A good motive we see, love, and a bad motive, selfish ambition. But Paul isn't writing this with a surprised tone at all. He understands human nature. He knows that even something as pure as telling someone about the gospel with the hope of salvation for their soul for all of eternity, that even something as pure as that people can do for the wrong reasons. Sure, he would have everyone do it out of love and do it for the right reasons and with the right motive, but even in our day, we can look around and there are preachers and ministers alike that seemingly use the pulpit or ministry for the sake of their own personal gain. But Paul, of course, we talked about it last week with Tony, he calls himself a slave. So these are those are wrong motives. And once I was meeting with a group of students and asking them some accountability questions, and I asked these, these groups of 7th and 8th grade students if they had read the Bible over the past week and what they were learning about God and what they were learning about themselves. And a couple of the boys answered, yes, I'd read the Bible. And they told me, but we kept going around. And one of the boys says that, yeah, he had read the Bible that week because his parents made him read the Bible before he was allowed to go play Xbox. So, of course, he read the Bible because he wanted to play Xbox. Now, it didn't take long for some of the other boys to realize that that wasn't the right Sunday school answer. They told him that getting to play Xbox wasn't a good enough motive to read the Bible. And I quickly pointed out, though, fellas, he read the Bible this week. We aren't talking about motives just at at this moment. We can get there, but we should still stop and say, wow, this kid has parents that have 
wanted and motivated him and moved him to value something scripture and reading the Bible more than just going to be entertained. All of us, though, we can very quickly at times look to others and judge their motives. And if if they aren't our motives, if they aren't doing the same things we're doing for the same reasons we're doing, then they're wrong. But at times, and I think that this is a passage that would tell us this, we need to stop and consider our own motives. And so listen to what Paul says in verse 18. He's just said that some people preach the gospel for selfish ambition. Some people preach the gospel um, not out of love. Some people preach the gospel even to, as Paul would say, to inflict some sort of pain on Paul. His response, verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. See, it isn't just that Paul isn't surprised by ulterior motives. It's that his ultimate goal, his ultimate ambition, and his ultimate joy is that the gospel and its proclamation and power is moving toward other people. So he isn't worried all the time about other people's motives. He's worried about what's actually happening, and that's the gospel going forward and moving toward people that haven't yet heard it. So he isn't wrecked, and he isn't upset when he knows that the gospel is being proclaimed even out of a bad motive or a bad heart. This is a changed perspective. So let's look at that changed perspective in verses 19 and following, and I'm going to read some of it probably through verse 24. Paul writes in verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21, For me For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. There are some Bible verses that particularly stick out to all of us, some that we would call our favorite verses. Maybe we would say that's our life verse. Maybe they helped us through a particular season or in life. And they, they could have helped us grow in ways that we wouldn't have without that word. There are some verses that are challenging, though, and they really make us stop and they can make us consider our heart and our motives and our actions. But then we get to a passage like this, and it kind of stops us in our tracks and makes us think about our entire lives. Some may read this and conclude that Paul has no concern at all for his life, and I think maybe that is is going in the right direction. But I think Paul really knows the value of a life lived completely and totally for Christ, a life that has checked all selfish ambition, a life that has checked all pride. A life that he has said is not mine any longer, but everything that I do and every breath that I take, it's more valuable for me to do that for Jesus than it is for me to do that for myself. Look at verse 20. He says, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. One preacher I was reading said this on this verse, this is how you honor Jesus above all things. You care more about his glory than your glory and you live this way with courage. And I think that this is 
what we have to understand when it comes to trying to wrap our mind around Paul's perspective. It takes a deep level of trust in God and a deep level of courage to live this way. But it also takes time. If Paul had written this letter and kind of given his perspective immediately after his conversion, his perspective most likely wouldn't have been as drastically altered. He did something, though, which Tony and I have both mentioned. He filled his mind with Christ. He filled his heart with Christ. And he filled his time with Christ. He even filled his work with Christ. Everything that he did, it was all about Jesus. And so now he's sitting here saying, whether I live or whether I die, I know that the Lord is going to gain glory from this. And if you have time, you can turn over to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and Paul will write these words to the church at Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Every effort was made by Paul to grow his affection and to fan into flame a love for Jesus. In so doing, his affection, his attention, and his desire for himself waned, though. As he set his mind and he set his focus and he set his desire more and more and more on Jesus, that means he had to take all of those things less and less and less off of himself. And let's be honest, you don't write things like Paul is writing here or end up with this type of perspective on life if you are completely self-consumed. You have to think of yourself less. And in verse 21, he really drives the entire point home in one of the more famous verses in all the Bible. We quote it a lot, but I don't know how much we can even really get this type of perspective. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He begins by saying, for to me. Again, this is very personal. And think about all that he has gone through, all the experiences, what he could have had in life that we talked about at the beginning, this massive transformation that we can read about in Acts, and then where he is now, this gospel that has transformed him has landed him in prison. He wasn't, he wasn't always certain of where Christ would leave him, but he was willing to constantly go. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and we'll read about it in a couple weeks as we walk through this book, but let me read it for you. He says this, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. If we really believe that God is good, then it shouldn't worry us or cause distrust when we really know that He is in control of all things. So if God is good and He is in control of all things, therefore we can trust when He works in our lives for His good pleasure. Knowing that it may not turn out quite like we had expected, knowing that it might not turn out quite like we had hoped, knowing where that, that the fact that the gospel may take us places that we never really envisioned or we never really even planned for, but the gospel moves us in ways and God does through his good pleasures. He is working through us in ways that are, if God is good, then he is moving us in ways that are also good. That is where Paul is his life is being lived for God's good pleasure. But look at the rest of this verse 19. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's hard for the English language to catch exactly what, what uh, this verse is uh, saying 
If we did a literal translation only, it would say, to live Christ, to die gain. It's almost like the words live and Christ are interchangeable, or, or, or the words die and gain are interchangeable. So Paul's saying, if I am alive, Christ. If I am to die, gain. Why? Because Christ. It's very point blank and very to the point. It's as simple as that for the heart and the mind and the life that are consumed fully with Jesus. It doesn't have to be a very complex thought. It doesn't have to be a very complex philosophy of life. It can be something as simple as something that doesn't even sound like a complete sentence to us. If I am alive, Christ. If I am to gain, Christ. Now, we need to think about what all of this means in our own lives. Just to help us understand where our hearts are, though, let me ask a couple of questions, but it really begins here. How is your life different than your neighbor's? And I don't know who you live by exactly, but I'm, I'm talking about the co-worker. I'm talking about the person that is involved in the same clubs that you're involved in, the, the, the parent that brings their child to the same sports field that you drop your child off at, or, or the, the parent that coaches alongside of you. How is your life different than your neighbors that may not believe anything about Jesus that you do? What is it about your life that shows as an overall formation of life that you trust, that you love, that you serve, that you give, that you pursue and desire things that the average person or the unregenerate or the unbelieving person doesn't? Because we're talking about an overall perspective of life here. And if our lives have truly been impacted by the gospel, if our hearts have been impacted by the gospel and transformed by the truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins and therefore we're going to do everything we can for his glory, then our lives should look different. I think we would admit that this kind of perspective on life and really on Jesus himself isn't in any way average though. So what can you do today to make sure that your whole life is being leveraged for Jesus' sake on earth. And here's the series of questions that I said that I was going to start with at the very beginning. What is it that is in your life that must die in order for you to truly be faithful? Are you filling your time with evangelistic efforts, or are you filling your time with entertainment? Are you ordering your life around work, or are you ordering your life around the Word? Are you filling your heart with prayer and your time with service? Or are you pursuing things that are going to wash away very quickly, that are like a vapor? They're here for even just a season in life, which is also a vapor, and then they're gone. Things that you can't pursue forever, things that, that really won't mean much in eternity. These are the questions that help us gauge what we value, but ordering our lives well helps our hearts to be transformed. So like we said at the beginning, this is, a, this is about as personal a look into someone's life as we can get. So I can't answer all of those questions for you. I, I am having to work through a couple of those questions for myself as I was studying this week, preparing for this lesson. Some of these words that Paul writes, I have to look at myself and say, man, I am not where Paul's at. But by God's grace and through prayer, I hope to end up there. But only you can truly consider your life and what you value most. So consider your life. Consider your perspective. Consider what it is that, that you are living for. Is it for you to live Christ 
and to die Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we see Paul here and a great perspective on life, but really, Lord, this tells us way more about you. The fact that Paul is willing to be persecuted, the fact that Paul is willing to die, the fact that Paul is willing to be jailed shows us that you are worth it. And so, Father, I pray that all of us, as we listen to this lesson, as we read this word, that we would realize or come further to the realization of the fact that you are worth it, that we've placed our hope and our trust for our eternal souls in your hands for all of eternity. But, Father God, I pray that we would trust you with every single day until you call us home or until you come to get us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.